Okay, we are in Romans chapter 15, Romans chapter 15, and we've already gone through a couple of weeks of this, but, uh, so we're gonna pick it up in verse, in verse 8. Romans chapter 15 and verse 8, and you remember the context, we were learning about amoral things. Not immoral, but amoral things that, that we had a choice. We, we're not to put it upon others, but we have a choice on how to live. But he tells the stronger to bear with the weaker in this. So let's pick it up from verse 8 of Romans chapter 15. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the Father. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. And he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And Isaiah, again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles Hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we'll stop right there. So, in verse 8 he says, For I say to you that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the Father. I mean, think about this. I want you to remember, who is Jesus? He is the one through whom the entire universe was created. There is nothing, it tells us in the Gospel according to John chapter 1, there is nothing that has been created that he didn't create. He made everything. He is God come in the flesh. This God come in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the creator of everything. It says, but I say to you that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. Look at how it characterizes Jesus, that he has come as a servant to the, to the circumcision. This is what, what it says of him. And then he, he even says of himself in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus referred to himself. How did Jesus refer to himself? Most often in the New Testament, he referred to himself as the Son of Man. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus comes and it says that, for I say to you, that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. That means to the Jews. The circumcision means to the Jews. Jesus came as a servant to the Jews. The God of heaven and earth appears on earth to become a servant to the Jews. For what reason? On behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. It was on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises that had been given to the fathers, meaning Abraham, and then it was further confirmed to, to Isaac and to Jacob, reconfirmed to the two of them as well. He said, I've come to confirm the promises, meaning that, and, and it says here, um, in verse 8, become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises. On behalf of the truth. This is why I say, as a scientist, I chase the universe to try to explain it. The Word of God defines the universe. Everything, everything. 
that is set in order is set in order by the word of God. His word is so powerful and it says that that he's done this, he's come as a servant to the Jews on behalf of the truth of God to confirm it. On behalf of the truth of God. It's so real. When God says something, it's so real. On, on that behalf, he says, I've come to be a servant to the Jews on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. He is confirming the promises that were given to the fathers. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy as it is written. So, the Gentiles come in because of mercy. Jesus comes because of a promise made to Abraham. That's why He comes. A promise that was made to Abraham, He comes to confirm this. He's working through the, through the Jews, and He comes to confirm these promises to them. And then He brings in the Gentiles because of mercy. The Jews because of a promise, the Gentiles because of mercy. And then he says, and then he reveals in chapter 9, he says, there are verses in the Old Testament, and he's quoting these verses from the Old Testament. So he's citing 2 Samuel 22, uh, uh, verse 50, which is the same as Psalm 18, verse 49. Then he cites Deuteronomy 32, 43, Psalm 117, 1, and Isaiah 11, 10, to show that all along, this was not a mystery. It was not a mystery that the Gentiles are going to be touched by the Messiah. That is not a mystery. That's not what the, the New Testament talks about a mystery. It's revealed right there in the Old Testament. It's revealed. So he says that the Gentiles are going to be among you. The Gentiles are going to be praising God. The mystery, the mystery is that the Gentiles would be one with the Jews in the body of, uh, of the Messiah. That was the mystery. It was not a mystery that the Gentiles were going to be coming in. Here he's, he's shown there's all these verses. As we're going to read later, the mystery, as it talks about in the book of Ephesians, is that they're going to be one body. They're going to be together. What the Jews thought, you'd continue to have this separateness between the Jews and the Gentiles. Yes, Messiah would be the Messiah of all. But the mystery that was not revealed in the Old Testament, but only revealed in the New Testament, is that the two are going to come together in one body. And this is why that, that you see so much when you have a Jews worshipping with Gentiles. This is the fruition of it. People ask me, well, do you worship in a Messianic synagogue? I say, no, I don't. I don't. The, the, the intent was not for us to be worshipping separately. The intent was for Jews and Gentiles to be worshiping together. That was the intent. That's what was revealed in the New Testament. That the, the Gentiles would come in is not unusual. And the ministry, the ministry was mainly, Jesus' ministry was mainly to the Jews. He had some ministry to the Gentiles, but it was predominantly to the Jews. And it says in Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, But he answered and he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus said that. He was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's instructing his disciples. He says, These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He primarily focused on Israel because he came to confirm the promises. When he was confronted with Gentiles, boom, he ministered. In Samaria, he ministered. But his focus was primarily on the Gentiles. 
and, uh, on the Jews. And then the Gentiles are coming in, and now there is one body. And so he's bringing us together. So what Paul is saying here, he's saying, if, if God has taken Jews and Gentiles and brought them together, the bigger thing, the harder thing, certainly you can unite with people that think differently from you, that have different opinions from you. And that's exactly what he says in Romans chapter chapter 14, verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. We have differences of opinions. That's why I will never discuss politics. I don't do it because I am trying to minister to you wherever you are. If you take a position, on, on a political position in this country, you have now taken a position that's opposite to half the people in this country. And so I just stay away from it. Sure, I have my opinions. Sure, I vote. But but uh, I stay away from it because I am trying to get people saved from wherever they are. doesn't matter to me. I want to see them saved. Paul says, don't let these things divide you. And the divisions that we have in these country, this country right now over the, the, the political things and, 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 and certain issues is crazy to be dividing the church. God is saying, I've done the greater thing. I've brought Jews and Gentiles, which is really hard. I've brought them together. Certainly, you can stay together. And he says, those of you who think you're stronger, the obligation is more on you than on other people. Those of you who think you're strong, I'm asking you to yield more than to those who may not be as strong. I'm asking you who are the strong among you to yield a little bit more in giving to them. And then in verse 13 he says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So so this is what he's talking about. He's, he's, he's saying that, that I have filled you. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. There is such joy and peace in believing and taking hold of the scriptures that are there. Everybody goes through bouts of depression. Some people it's like this. Some people it's like this. All right? I don't know where you are on this spectrum. My wife is like this. I mean, she, I mean she's just, just always happy and excited. It, it takes a lot to really get her upset. I mean, I know how to do it. I, I, but, but it takes a lot. And and, uh, um, and 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 for me, I'm kind of like this. I, I have my ups and downs, but it goes away rather quickly. Some people go way down, but the Bible makes it very clear. He says, "Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing." When we take hold of the truth and start taking hold of it and believing it, it does so much. Lord, I believe your word. I believe your word. You take hold of it; it can lift you up. It says in, in John chapter 15, verse 10 and 11. It, well, let me first read verse 11. John chapter 15, verse 11 says, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. I've spoken these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Well, what did he say? That How we could get that? Well, you look up in verse 10, the verse above it. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. If you keep the commandments of God, the love of God will abide in you. He says, you will abide in my love as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So here's my love. 
It's this umbrella of love. Here's my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. You don't keep my commandments, I'll still love you. But you're not abiding there. You've now translated out of this umbrella of love. I still love you, but now you've exposed yourself to all sorts of attack. I can look at believers in Jesus Christ, and I can look at their lives and look at their walk and know what their joy is going to be like down the road. I'm talking a decade later. If they walk in the commandments of God, they are blessed. If they don't, they are going to end up in real trouble. Because not that the love of Christ has left them. They have left it. They have left that umbrella of love. And he says, this is how you get your joy. You stay in my commandments. It's not this fuzzy thing that's ethereal. Well, I wonder how I can stay in this. You keep my commandments and you will abide. There are commandments in the scriptures over and over again that we are daily in his word. We've gone over those scriptures again and again. If you're not daily in his word, these bouts of depression, these bouts of feeling of separation are going to be much greater. I mean, I've said it again and again because the Bible says it again and again. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If you don't, you won't. And and here he's saying... You know, just by taking hold and believing these truths, this can have such an effect in your life, in hope and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 13 of Romans chapter 15, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit working in your life. There is great, great reward in believing the Word of God. Great reward. Because it's absolutely true. You can believe in the Word of God beyond even what you see with your own eyes. What you see with your own eyes sometimes is, is just, you know, it looks like a mess in the world. And I have people come in, isn't the world just terrible in it? I suppose it is, but, you know, compared to human history, I think we have it pretty good. I think we do. I mean, he, here is the generation in which Paul was writing. So, so uh, uh, this was written in, in uh, uh, the late 50s. AD. So what was going on in this time? So Nero, Claudius, Caesar, Augustus, Germanicus ruled the Roman Empire from 54 to 68 AD. So he, this is written in about 57 AD. And most historians agree that he was brutal. This is, this is Nero. He was brutal, irresponsible, uh, and opulent ruler who was famous for persecuting Christians. He was known to force Christians into gladiator matches where they would be eaten by lions and he and often he often lit his garden parties with the burning carcasses of christian human torches i actually think it's it's not too bad right now you know when you look at the generation in which paul was writing this this window that we have in human history where we are living at this instant us it's not too bad and you're complaining I mean, you go to other parts of the world, it's not nearly as nice as it is right now. And, and life can turn on a dime. And, and so, so um, uh, he says that I want you to see a difference. I want you to see something different. Now let's pick up at verse 14, Romans chapter 13, verse 14. 
And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. And ministering as a priest to the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by the word and deed, in the power and signs and wonders, in the power of of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Okay. So, in verse 14, he says, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. You can imagine, as Paul writes this letter to the Romans, a church that he has never visited, he did not found that church, he's writing to them, and they're listening to this, and they're thinking, he might even doubt our sincerity in Christ by the way he has admonished us, by the way that he has instructed us. So he wants to calm them, and he says to them, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. So he is saying, look, I have no doubts that you are mature in Christ. You are a mature church. That's what he's, he's trying to comfort them. Just because somebody comes with a strong teaching, it doesn't mean that they're judging you for not walking. He is coming at them with a strong teaching, yes. But he says, look, I'm convinced that you, you, you're good folks. That's exactly what he says. That, that, uh, uh, that you yourselves are full of goodness. You're good folks. You're filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. This is the, the instruction, this is the instruction of maturity. That you're filled with all knowledge and you're able to admonish one another. You're able to admonish one another. Think about it. If somebody reproves you, if somebody admonishes you, do you think, I'm not going back to that church, why should I go? If they don't like me the way I am, I'm out of here. That's exactly what he's saying is a lack of maturity. If somebody says something you don't like and you say, I'm out of here, that is a lack of immaturity. That, that is a lack of maturity, a sign of immaturity. That's exactly what it is. You are able to admonish one another. You know, it's, it's hard for me to try to admonish somebody who I have no relationship with. Because, you know, there's no relationship there. So, so, so here he says, this is what you do in the body of Christ. You have to admonish one another. This happens in the body of Christ. You admonish one another. This is what happens. This is part of what happens in the body of Christ. This is a show of maturity. Think about it. If somebody should correct you. I remember when I first went into the discipleship house as a, as a junior in college. I mean, I, I, everything I did, everything I did, I mean, there was some guy there correcting me. That's not the way you should do it. That's not the way you should do it. Finally, it was like, everything I do. And so I, was, I, I went to this one guy who was been in the house for a few years, and I thought he'd kind of comfort me. I'd say, Every, everything I do, it seems to be wrong. I'm corrected on everything. 
and he and he opens up to the book of Proverbs, and he, and it, it says, uh, 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 "Admonishing and correction is a way of life." I mean, there was absolutely no mercy. It was like, oh, "Okay, don't worry." No, it's a way of life. He just hit me again. Admonishing and correction is a way of life. That's what the Bible says. And you know, it was very good for me. It was very good. Um, I just had to listen to a to a seven-part series that all the faculty and staff at Rice University had to listen to. A seven-part series, it's, it's online, and you have to listen to it. By, by May 20th, you have to listen to it. And it, it, it's just... Uh, and you, you, you try to go double speed... You can't increase the speed. You can't increase. And if you just drag the thing to the end, it doesn't say, okay, finished. It, it's got, it makes you listen to this. And one of the things is there's some graduate student talking about, my, my boss just picked on me so much in front of the other, in front of the other group members and everything. And, and, uh, and she's saying how, how, you know, she went to, to the Title IX office and the Title IX speak to the advisor. And I met with my research group after that. I said, that's all I ever do with you guys. If you do something, you're up at the board and you say something wrong, I correct you. I said, if you're going to run to, to HR or to Title IX every time I correct you, I mean, what am I going to do? And they're like, no, th- you're doing the right thing. I mean, I just give it to them. This is part of education. I had two students come back. They graduated from my group over 20 years ago. They just came back on Friday. They were visiting Houston. They brought their two kids to my office, and they met in my research group, and they got married. And this guy said, aside from my father, you've had the most impact in my life. And he's an unbeliever. And he said, I had to tell you that. You've had the most impact. I said, you know, I just got done with this video that talks about how I shouldn't, you know, push my people too hard. He says, no, this was the best thing for us. They both work for Intel, which is a very pushy company. That company just drives its people. And they said, this was the best preparation we could have had. And so, so if you can't take admonishing, this is what's in the body of Christ. Say the pastor says something you don't like. So we've got the next five weeks, the pastor's going to talk about the remodeling that's going to be taking place. And you say, why are they always raising money? This church has one Sunday a week, a year, one Sunday a year, it talks about giving in this church. One Sunday. And on that one Sunday, one Sunday a year, there will people say, this church is always asking for money. I'm like, you have no idea. One Sunday a year, they talk about giving. And you say they're always asking for money, except when they're doing big remodeling projects. This, the church has not had remodeling for, for about 18 or 19 years. I remember when this gymnasium was not here. The gymnasium was on the first floor. They moved every, there was no second floor. They moved all the old people and the, the, uh, uh, children to the ground floor for safety's sake, in case there's a fire. And they moved everything else to upper floors. And so they built this gym. Now I ask you, did you pay for that chair that you're sitting on? Did you? I don't know how much these folding chairs are. Say $60. Did you pay for that? No, you didn't. Somebody else did. And you're sitting right there. You got your butt in that chair that somebody else paid for. This is normal. You pay for things for other people. Alright? Did you pay for the, your feet are on this wooden floor. Did you pay for those people, pieces of wood where your feet are sitting on? No, you didn't. Somebody else did. And it wasn't the government. The government paid nothing for that. 
right? Somebody gave money to pay for that floor. That you're, you're, you're sitting right there and you got your feet on that floor. Somebody did that. Now, the church is going to have a major remodeling thing. You say, why, why are they remodeling? Because they have to. That, the, the sanctuary has not been remodeled for 25 years. Alright? You say, well, it looks good enough for me. Well, it has to be brought up to standards where there's, there's better electronics and sound systems and all these things that need to go on. Alright? So, they're going to be talking for the next five Sundays, they're going to be talking about this campaign to raise money. Now, they are not going to college students thinking that you're going to fund this thing. Trust me, your five dollars is not going to do a whole lot for this. It's what it is for you when you give something. Give something. You say, well, I'm in college. That doesn't excuse you. All right? You can't use that as an excuse all the time. Do you buy yourself a Starbucks coffee? How about sacrificing that and taking that $5 and giving it? That's a major sacrifice. Come on. Okay. Here, here, take that money. You know, look, this is for you. Now, they're not looking to college students to pay for this whole thing. There is going to come a day when you're in a church, when you're getting a real salary, and you're going to give real money to these sorts of things that are for generations beyond you. The people who paid for this, these chairs and the floor that you're, you're, a lot of these people are now dead. They're gone. That was paid for like 18 years ago. These people are gone. But they had something that this is for the future. If you think this church, well, why is it always internal? We should be giving out. I mean, this church does so much outward. If you don't know it, you got to read about all the, like 12 different local ministries in the third ward and in the fifth ward, in, 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 uh, uh Casa of Buenos Samaritana, where they, they doctors just staff these things and pharmacists and nurses and dentists just giving all of this. Where do all, where does all this medicine come from? It comes from people in this church are giving money. This is what the money goes to. This church, when I started coming here 23 years ago, we had one service in this one church. Now we've got three campuses, we've got multiple services going on, and we got a Chinese service, and we got two Spanish services, and we got just so much going on. You're giving beyond yourself. If you say, well, I'm not going to go to a church where they're not asking for money, I guarantee you what will happen is, as soon as you go to that church, you'll start asking for money. Because you can't get away from this thing. And if you think, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go to another church. It'll follow you. God will follow you with this thing because He wants you to learn to be generous. So when you hear about this, I want you to just realize He's not depending on college students to underwrite this whole thing. Alright? Number one. Number two. This church does not ask for money often. One Sunday a year they do. Aside from when they're having a building campaign, to extend this. And you say, well, why do we need to have this? They, because we get so many people joining this church who come from the community and their kids use the facilities here. They come here for upward basketball and they end up getting saved. They end up coming through the children's ministry, coming in, and then through that they get saved. They're going to set up this, this, this whole play thing for kids, indoor, air conditioned, for kids in the community to come. Because parents will be here and they'll get saved. Do you see the strategy behind this? This is what they're doing. So Paul says, you know how to admonish one another. These are the signs of a healthy church. That you can admonish one another. That people can say things without you getting your feelings all 
bent out of shape. This is what life is about. Your spouse one day is going to say things that you really don't like. So what are you going to do? You're going to leave? Well, you'll be leaving one spouse after another spouse after another spouse. And the more you get to know a person, the more you're going to know what buttons can really you can push to really get them. And in your anger, you're going to push those buttons sometimes. And you're going to hope your spouse doesn't leave you. And you shouldn't leave your spouse. And and uh, um, uh, these things happen. And your kids, your kids are going to grow up. The, the kids that you have paid so much for raising, they're going to say things that really hurt your feelings. And what are you going to do? And just say, well, forget it. I'm not... We're... College is on your own. You're on your... No, I mean, you're the parent. You're the stronger one. You work on this relationship. You work on this relationship. This is what you do. This is the signs of a healthy church. He says, the reason I'm telling you this is I am in verse 16. So, so, so I've written all this to you to, because I'm a minister. I'm a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God. And then he starts talking about all the different successes he's had in ministry. He's talking about the successes he's had in ministry. And this is what he's, he's talking about. And he's glorying in the Lord. He says, I'm, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, just as Peter was the apostle to the Jews. And he's talking about, about what he's done. And in verse 19, he says, he says, uh, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and around about as far as Elycrium, I've fully, fully preached the gospel of Christ. I've fully or in fullness preached the gospel of Christ. He did to Elycrium. Elycrium is 1500 miles away. That's Yugoslavia and Albania, where that is. It's 1,500 miles from Jerusalem. This guy's ministry was 1,500 miles. That's like halfway across the United States in distance. That's a long way. That's 2,400 kilometers. That's a long way. This is the whole eastern portion of the Roman Empire. This guy is covered. This is what he's saying. This is a lot of territory he's covered. And he says, I've done it. It's done now. He says in verse 20, and thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, those who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. So first he says, my immediate plans are I got to go down to Jerusalem because I got to bring an offering to them. And next week we're going to talk about an offering. You say, why, why are you talking? I don't talk about money. Look, I get zero from what you give. All right. I get no salary for this. All right. So even if you were to say, you know, you double my salary, it's not going to do anything for me in this. All right. For your sake, for your sake, I'm, t- I'm speaking this. For your sake, I'm doing this. So we'll talk about that next week. But, but he says, I'm going to be going to Jerusalem. But I have longed to come to you, but I couldn't for all the service. He says, but now I'm done. I fulfilled the ministry in this part of the, the empire. Now I want to go to the western side of the Roman Empire. So he wants to visit Rome on his way to Spain, the furthest most point of the Roman Empire. I want to go there. And I want to minister the gospel. I'm ministering the gospel, not where other apostles have been. We are to go and minister the gospel where the other apostles have already been. 
he was going in as an apostle. He was establishing places, going and preaching places where other apostles had not been. He said, because I was prevented in coming to you because I just had too much to do. And now I'm going to, I'm going to go and, and, uh, now I'm, I'm done. I'm going to head on over to Spain. On my way to Spain, I'm going to visit you. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to help me on my way in ministry to Spain. You're going to help me. You're going to help to finance my ministry in Spain. Paul, you're always asking for money. Look, this is the word of God. God set this thing up like this. And you will see the Gentiles, the Gentiles are going to be supporting. He's going to talk about a gift. The Gentiles are supporting a gift that's going to go to Jerusalem. And to this day, the vast majority of support, the vast majority of support that goes to Jewish missions, that goes to missions to the Jews, is paid for by the Gentiles. To this day. And we're going to see why that has to be the case next time. That has to be the case. God has raised up Gentiles for the focus of bringing Jews into the kingdom of God. And he says, you're going to help me on my way as I go to Spain to these other Gentiles. You're going to help me on my way. Paul wants it for what it's going to do in their lives. What it's going to do in their lives. He says, and and, and uh, I'm planning to come and see you. Now, he got waylaid after he went to Jerusalem, and he did end up in Rome, but not in the Roman church there. He ended up under house arrest for a couple of years. And, uh, 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 and, and, and there, there is, there's nothing in the Bible that tells us that Paul ever got to Spain, but there is good, good uh, uh, extra-biblical literature from the early, early uh, 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 times that says that Paul did get to Spain prior to his second, second uh, uh, going to Rome where he was ultimately martyred. Okay, let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the truth of your word. And I pray, Lord, that you'd take these young people and you'd firm them up in truth, that they would be able to handle when somebody would admonish them. Father, I pray that you would make them strong. Father, I pray that you'd build them up in the fear and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And as they read these words in the word of God, that they would be built up strong. Father, do this, I pray. And Lord, I pray that you would be working in the lives of the unbelievers. Father, for the unbelievers, save souls, Lord. Save souls, I pray. For the glory of Jesus, draw people to Jesus, I pray. Save souls. Turn them to you. Father, I ask you, may we participate in this salvation by bringing people to the feet of Jesus. Father, please let us participate in this that we would share in that joy with Jesus as he presents them to the Father. Lord, save souls, I pray, for the glory of Jesus and in his name. Amen.